Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today we're joined by Hector Javier Preciado, EWMBA Class of 2011. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. Hector, I really want to hear your origin story, you know, where you're from, where you grew up. One of the reasons why I like to share my story is because I think there's a lot of people like me with my origins who don't get a mm-hmm. chance to do a lot of what I've been very fortunate to do. And, I, and oftentimes when I'm talking to people who have a similar origin story as myself, is I tell them that in many ways I'm nothing special, right? Mm-hmm. And, and why I say that is because I, I like to remind them that, look, if I did it, you could do it. Right. And if anything, use me as a bar for some heights and, and irrespective of where you place me, exceed that bar. Because mm-hmm. if I did it coming where I came from, then use me as an example for why you or other people like me can actually do not just what I'm doing, but can, can exceed what I've been able to do. And yeah. so that's what for me, like the origin story is important for me. And so for me, the origin story begins in Mexico. And one way to look at it is it's like the consummate Mexican immigrant American story. I'm the American dream. Were you, you born know? in Mexico? I was born in Mexico. Yeah. So I was born in the state of Jalisco, which is where Guadalajara is the second largest city in Mexico. Right. So I was born in a town about 120 kilometers northeast of Guadalajara in the highlands of Jalisco, which is where tequila comes from. So, you know, it's in my blood. I know Jalisco's too, because in downtown LA, by the old Sears building, there's that famous Marisco's Jalisco's food (laughs) truck. You know that one, right? That's where I grew up. So the housing project right across the street from where the Malisco's, that's where I grew up. That's where I grew up. Yeah. And actually... The guy who started Jalisco's Marisco, there's actually two. There's Jalisco, and then down the street, there's Cuatro Vientos, and, and they're brothers. Oh, um, really? Yeah, from my hometown. And the Cuatro Vientos, the other one, my brother's is actually one of the co-owners of that one. Um, oh, that's crazy. Yeah, and actually, so it's funny you said that, because the origins of that one actually is from my hometown. So the way they got started was when they were young. You know, my hometown, one of the unique things about it is that seafood, mariscos like that, that style is very popular in my hometown. And so that town is nowhere near a body of water. Usually yeah, when yeah. you're thinking about like seafood, it's, it's coming from places that are closer to the coast. This one, like yep. I said, it's 120 miles northeast of Guadalajara. Guadalajara is like another 200 kilometers inland. Wow. So it's like... <laughs> It's South Central Mexico, but yes, seafood culture is very big in the in my in, in that neighborhood. So in my hometown, the, the brothers, as young men, they would have like little pop-ups. Mm-hmm. And my brother, as a teenager, would help out, help one of them out in his pop-up. And then, you know, we immigrated to the United States and, and that's, so that story. And then and then my brother was working at, in the city of Vernon doing industrial work. And then this guy immigrated to the U.S., to L.A. from the town. And he's hey. I'm, I'm going to do my pop-up here. Can you help me out? And my brother had been laid off from his company. So he's like, sure, I'll help you out. So I started, we started off at his helping him out and a little cart in the projects where I grew up. Yeah. Now it's Cuatro Vientos and it's got like two restaurants across the street. And so let's go back to the origin story. Right? So, yes. So I was born in, in this town in South Central Mexico in the highlands of Jalisco, the homeland of tequila in a place called San Juan de los Lagos. Uh, that's the name of my town. Mm-hmm. And and I'm one of 13 kids. I'm the 11th of 13. 
I have six brothers and six sisters. And my family, we moved to the U.S. en masse in 1980. But, but for a number of years, a couple of decades prior to that, my dad, my older brothers, my grandfathers used to come to the United States and work seasonally to, it's, it's again, the, the concept of an immigrant Mexican story. You come to the United States, you work, you earn some money, you right. go back to Mexico. And, and for a number of years, my dad was doing that back and forth. And, wow. you know, and, and if you look at how my parents, how my siblings were born, we were born in, in roughly two year intervals. Right. Mm. So it was, so that was, it fit in with a cycle of my dad comes home, they procreate and uh, <laughs> yeah. goes to work, works seasonally, comes back, baby's born, takes care of the baby. Okay. We need more money. Goes back to the United States, works some more, comes back, has another yeah. child. Right. So it's like the way my family grew up in that town, there's not a lot of opportunities, as you can imagine, for a lot of people, the, you know, the push factors for why it is that you leave your town or your mm-hmm. home and come to the United States are mainly economic and a lot of violence and other things that in other, in other countries, right? But at mm-hmm. least for our story, it was economic drivers that pushed my family to come to the United States. And so finally in 1980, my, my dad and several of my brothers were already living in the United States, in LA, in Boyle Heights, right there in those apartments where the mariscos are. And the family kept growing. And my mom finally hit a point where she's like, I can't do this anymore. Like I yeah. by myself, like I need support. I need help. Like, and, and that's when the decision was made that, okay, we're all going to move to the United States. And so in 1980, when I was three, that's when a critical mass of us came to Boyle Heights, to East LA. And, and that's how my life started in the U.S. Tell us a little bit more about your upbringing and any turning points in your life, uh, in your youth. I've had, I've been very fortunate that I've had a lot of seminal moments that have allowed me to, to do a lot of very unique things with my life. You know, growing up in the projects in Boyle Heights in the 1980s, it was in the height of the crack epi- epidemic, right? It was at the height of gang violence. And so I had like this, in some ways, my upbringing was like a duality. You know, on the one hand, you had that social ills, right? The yeah. poverty, low income, drug abuse, gang violence. Those kinds of things that were prevalent. And there was many moments I remember growing up was at night and all of a sudden you all you hear is just a spray of gunshots. And then we all knew the routine. Everybody duck and hit the floor. So there was moments where like, turn off the lights. And so, you know, we as a family are literally like on the floor, lying down, just waiting for things to calm down. So it was that. But at the same time, I grew up in, in a predominantly immigrant community, high density population where you could literally during the daytime go outside and be a kid for like 12 hours. And you know that the neighbor over there knows your family and that neighbor over there knows your family. And cause you're playing with each other's kids and yep, yep. you're running around, we're riding bikes. Like it was an amazing way actually to grow up and be a kid. And so it was a duality. It was the negative social aspects of growing up in inner city urban environment during the 1980s in low income neighborhood. But then the community that it really fostered and the pride and joy that comes at. To this day, I still rep Boyle Heights. You know, mm. I am so proud to say that I'm from Boyle Heights. And I rep it all the time. I got t-shirts, I got hats, I got stickers. <laughs> uh, when I was working at LinkedIn, I used to walk around with my laptop from station to station or do the work. And I had this huge Boyle Heights sticker across the back of my computer, my laptop. And people would say like, oh, I know where that is or what is that? And so like, I'm always repping it. And so for me, that was kind of like the upbringing. And for us, being in that environment, you did one of two things. My parents used to tell us all the time, we came here to this country to have a better life. And mm-hmm. so you're either going to go to school or you're going to work. Like there's right. no in between. 
And so that strong immigrant ethic that you share and I share, it's common amongst those populations, right? And because I was young, it was the, my, the younger generation of my siblings that we were able to go through the public school system in the United States, right? And so mm-hmm. some of my older siblings were older. And so when it came, education wasn't an option for them. It was like, we're coming and you're going to work. And, and I have an older brother who's brilliant. Like he's, his recall with numbers is amazing. And I was like, man, you would have made an amazing finance person. But because of, of our situation, he never got the chance. And so we did. So for us, a younger generation, which I was part of, education was the way to go, right? And, yeah. and part of it, I think I was blessed. And school for me was fun. School for me was easy. Like, I, I really enjoyed learning and I had a curiosity. And I always want to be like the person to answer every question. And, you know, I was that annoying kid growing up. All the teachers loved me. Yeah. But maybe not all the students thought I was, you know, want to be my friend. Cause I, 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 I know that feeling. It's, it's all, for me personally, and maybe I think you might resonate with this as an immigrant child as well, it, it's almost like a survival instinct, right? To brown nose, just to gain favor in the classroom. And I don't know what Mexican culture is like in, in terms of like the education system, but in China, it's very much respect the teacher. I think it's like that in a lot of other countries as well, where there's a lot of respect. Yeah, yeah, I know it is. And, and I think, and for us, it was the same because I think what people... people don't understand the immigrant experience enough. And certainly like when people think about Latinos, and mm-hmm. as a community in the United States, like we don't have the highest rates of like college matriculation and graduation. But I think what people forget is that for my family, when we came to the United States, like education is not free in Mexico. You have to pay for it. And so to your point about like the teacher in Mexico has a lot of cultural and professional capital. Right. right? The teacher is respected. Yep. And so when I came to the United States, like my family was the same thing. There was no like, oh, the teacher doesn't like me. Oh, like, no, like my parents was like, if your teacher saying something about you, like that is gospel. Like, I don't care what you say. Right. Right. And so for me, for all of my siblings who went through the public school system, like none of us were ever problematic students because our parents taught us that. And for me, like I said, I just, I was just thriving in a school setting. And, and part of it, I think it's just, you know, I benefited from programs all throughout my education that were designed to help kids like me. I was in elementary school. I was tested for gifted. I ended up being in the gate program. And then in in junior high school, I learned of like the MESA program, mathematics, engineering, science achievements. And, you know, all those programs that were available at the time for for kids in in, in my environment, like I took full advantage of them. And, And for me, it was just an opportunity for me to like continue to learn, but also do some cool stuff that other kids in my neighborhood weren't being exposed to. And then I'll give an example. Like when I was in junior high school, every summer of junior high school was spent through the MESA program. I used to go to summer school at Cal State University, LA. We weren't taking classes with college professors. We were taking classes through the MESA program who was teaching us math and exposing us to engineering and science. But we were in a college campus, you know, like we were learning in college classrooms. And so from the age of 11, I, I was already going to college campuses and that became the norm for me. Right. And that, and even though like I didn't know anybody who went to college, even though I didn't know what college was about, I I always had this earlier. And then I was like, oh, I'm, oh yeah, I'm gonna be here. I'm, I'm gonna study. That's part of the plan. Everybody does this, no, right? Like, so early on, like I I was lucky to be exposed to those kinds of programs because that's kind of academically what began to set me up for me to be able to succeed and eventually be the first person in my family to go to college. I mean, being the first to go to college in your family, was it also difficult financially? I, yes and no. Let me start with the no. 
it wasn't as difficult financially because I got financial aid and I had some scholarship finance and grants. And so like, I didn't have to ask my family to pay my tuition, but at the same time, all the other expenses that come along with like being a college student that wasn't there. And, and, and it became a cultural thing, you know? So like when I'm in my dorm room with my, with my roommate and then he, he runs, he kicks the door open and walks in with this huge care package, a box. I'm like, Whoa, what is that? He's like, Oh, let's check it out. I got a care package. And I was like, what's a care package? You know? And oh, my parents, they sent me this thing and they sent me this and they sent me that. And I was like, what? That's a thing? You know? And, <laughs> and so my parents are not thinking that, right? Because my parents are like, they're living there. Yeah. They're raising more kids and they're, they're back in East LA in Boyle Heights. And like, they don't know any of this stuff. And so it was like those right. kinds of things, like the cultural differences, right? That really, when people are talking about spring break, what are you doing for break? Oh, we're going to go skiing in Tahoe. And oh, we're going to just go to Colorado and or do this to that i was like spring break what is that yeah like all right i'm gonna I'm go to tijuana with my friends which yeah people do that so there was a, a clear economic divide and and that was for me that was the first time being that environment and realize oh wow i'm poor and that was right. another jarring kind of realization a seminal moment in my life that i clearly remember that because before then like I didn't think about it. It was normal. It was, that's how I grew up and just what we did. Yeah, you're, that's and, how your community, everyone around you was. Yeah. You know, along the way, you decided to continue your studies at Pomona College, which is pretty close to me, actually, in sociology and media studies. How did you make that pivot? I went back to LA and, and I went to a community college first. And actually, it was a community college where I learned how to be a college student. Mm-hmm. You know, and I went to a place called Mount Sac, Mount San Antonio College. And I'm a big fan of the community college system because that is where I really learned how to be a college student. And I had to start all over from scratch. And, and, and I'm glad I went through it. And it was there that I shifted my focus out of the sciences and I said, okay, I'm not going to go to medical school. <laughs> so what I'm going to do? <laughs> well, at the time I had ambitions of becoming a college professor, you know, after like a life journey, I was in community college. And I decided I'm going to, I'm going to become a college professor. Right. And at the time yeah. I mentioned communications kind of being an undercurrent. When I was there at community college, I was writing for a Spanish language magazine. I was writing for a local LA times affiliate newspaper in the San Gabriel Valley. And, and I was writing pieces around culture and society and just communicating opinions, sharing stories about people in the community. Yeah. And so I took my first sociology class in Mount San Antonio College, and that just blew my mind. And, and for me, it was like, wow, I have been thinking about these things. I have been writing thematically about things like this without even knowing that this is an actual discipline. Like, why didn't I not know about sociology when I was in Santa Cruz? Right? I was like, I'm right. going to take it a different approach. <laughs> and so that's kind of what led me. It was, it was the, the, the classes that I was taking in Mount San Antonio College that allowed me to you know, transition. And, and I did well, obviously, because I transferred to Pomona College. And, you know, so I graduated from Pomona and I moved to the Bay to come pursue a, a career in public policy. And this is at the Greenlining Institute, right? Yeah. The Greenlining Institute is where I started my career as part of the Leadership Development Academy as a summer associate. So I moved up to the Bay in 2002 to work at the Greenlining Institute in public policy. So I, I came in as a summer associate and I eventually became communications director, then health policy director, 
then development director, then its first chief operating officer. And it was, it was, it was a great career. Like I was on Univision and Telemundo on a regular basis, being interviewed wow. around policy and political issues. I had footage of me like uh, giving analysis when Barack Obama got elected. I'm talking about like the gubernatorial mm -hmm. races, like in, it's all in Spanish. Right? So again, communications has always been like an, an underlying current in what it is that I do. And I hit a point in which I started thinking about like what I want to do in my career, specifically what I want to do, what am I, what I'm going to do for like my next degree. Right. Yep. And, and working in public policy is not uncommon for my peers to go pursue public policy degrees. Right. Go to the Harvard Kennedy School, go to the Goldman School of Public Policy at Cal, yeah. the University of Texas at Austin, the LBJ School, right? So that was kind of like the trajectory right. that everybody was going in. But for me, based on the work that I was doing with Greenlining, I was exposed to the power and influence that the private sector wields over everything that we do. Mm -hmm. Right. The air you breathe, the food you eat, the cars you drive, the homes you own, the clothes you wear, right? All of those things are influenced largely by the private sector. And from a policy perspective, if we were on the same side of the aisle as the business community, that policy was going to advance no matter what, right? Like it was a done deal. But more often than not, from a policy improvement standpoint, that's not going to be the case. And so we kept trying to look for the people at these companies, at these corporations that we were either in partnership with or at odds with who would quote unquote get it. And what I realized is that we were partnering with the right people at these companies and corporations because it was their job for them to partner with community-based organizations like the Green Line Institute. That's what they did. Mm -hmm. And many of them who we partnered with were diverse. There was a community affairs officer, the development director for that corporation or the community relations person, it was all those roles. But none of them had the power, right? None of them were the CEO. None of them were in the C-suite. So right. nobody who's in the C-suite looked like me. And that's when I had an epiphany. And that's when I said, aha, I'm going to business school. At that time, my ambition changed and said, in order for me to affect positive change by way of a private sector job, I can't be a community relations director. You know? I can't be a foundation officer at this corporation. I need to be the CEO. Mm -hmm. And, and that's right. when I decided to go to business school. Enter Haas. Were there any defining moments during your experience at Haas that really propelled your leadership skills? Uh, I would say there's, there's a few things. I'll start with, I'll start with humility. Right. You know, uh, to this day, I'm still a confident person. I'm, I'm confident in my abilities. I'm confident in my skills and, and the successes that I've been able to build over the years speak to that. But I think from a leadership development standpoint, one of my biggest leaps was through humility and being humbled. And I remember when classes actually started and you sit in class with these amazingly talented people, super bright, coming from different parts of the globe with different experiences. There was not a lot of nonprofit professionals at Haas to this day. And so I remember just like listening to, you know, I'm in class and I'm learning from the professor and I'm totally in it. But what I wasn't prepared for was just the brilliance of my classmates and the perspectives that they would share. And I remember just being blown away 
time and time again at every single class where I was like, man, what you said was amazing. Mm-hmm. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Right? And so just being humbled by that, right? And sitting in a room full of like just brilliant minds and just being humbled by that and being like, man, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> you know, like why me? Right. <laughs> and so for me, that was part of like the leadership growth for me. Like that humbling experience really got me to thinking about like how much I, I don't know and how much more I have to learn and how much I have to step up my game. It really took me about like about a year and a half before I kind of started feeling more comfortable in that environment, feeling like, okay, I could contribute. And it started happening. Number two was the reinforcement from my classmates saying, not only do you belong here, but I appreciate what contributions you're making. Mm-hmm. And I think the next seminal moment was when the dean of the program at the time called me. He, he said, hey, come to my office. I want to talk to you about after class. If you have a few minutes. I said, yeah, absolutely. I went over to his office and he said, hey, we're going to be having elections for the officers for the EWMBA Association. And he's like, I've been observing you and I've been hearing about you. I think you consider being part of the EWBA Association. I said, well, you know, if I run for a role, you know I'm going to run for president, right? And I said it jokingly. And then he said, I wouldn't expect for you to do anything else. And I was like, oh, okay. So for me, that told me that if the dean of the EWMBA program at the Haas School of Business thinks this much of me, then there may be something to this thing. And so that's why that's how I decided to run. And and I ran it, you know, and since I'm working in public policy and I've been involved in political campaigns, and actually I had worked on the Obama campaign during that time as well. I took some time off from work to work on the Obama campaign, running like uh, Spanish media communications in Northern California. I ran my campaign yeah. to be WNBA president like a political campaign. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. And little did I recognize mm-hmm. when I became president, I was the first Latino to be the president. Um, of the WMBA association. And I was like, oh, wow. And so to me, it was telling, right? It's like, and in the time that the program's around, like I'm the first Latino to be elected into this leadership position. And and that's why it was like, more of us need to do this. And two years later, a friend of mine, Claudia, who also graduated from the program, she was the first Latina, the next Latina elected president. And so for me, that was important. And it was by way of my leadership experience and, and me being recognized that allowed me to be honored by my classmates to be selected to be the graduation speaker. And I felt like that became my brand. My mm-hmm. brand became, this is a leader. And, and, and I embraced that and I was humbled by that. And I didn't have any expectations walking into an MBA program. I just knew that this is what I wanted to do. I knew that this is the program that I wanted to pursue and I knew this is what I wanted to study. And I knew this was the network that I wanted to build. And I knew this is the community that I wanted to belong to. But other than that, I didn't have any expectations about how things were going to play out. And right. And so it exceeded all my expectations by far. And that's why I love Haas so much. Like it's done so many great things for me during the time that I was there. And to this day in my career, like it's still paying off. Like I'm here talking to you as part of the, the One Haas podcast. You know? Yes. Yeah. Still paying dividends. Part of the alumni network. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all that. And going back to what you shared in the beginning of this episode, the importance of sharing your story and having people hear that, hey, if 
this kid from Boyle Heights can make it, what's stopping them, right? They should not only match your accomplishments, but push themselves to excel. I think that's such a powerful message. If there's a young man or young woman who's from Jalisco today, right, who is sitting in the projects, who is thinking, there's nothing there for me. I don't know how to succeed. I know there's something about me, but I don't know how to go about doing it. Who, through somebody's link share, can listen to my story and be inspired maybe just a little bit. Like, it's all worth it, man. It's all worth it. Bring up a good point, because I think the other purpose of this podcast, since we're talking about it, you know, there are Berkeley leaders listening to this, is to broaden our minds, right? Is in case there is that young URM looking for an opportunity that we understand their background a little bit more and we're more willing and open to open doors for people who may not have had opportunities in the past. So. I really want to thank you for just <laughs> taking the time to share your story. So yeah, we want to hear about your where you just moved to. So you've had quite a career after Haas, from Atkami to LinkedIn to Hired, and now you're at Aluma. You just joined Aluma as the Chief Growth Officer. Can you share a little bit about what Aluma is, what you guys do, and what you have in mind as the Chief Growth Officer? Yeah. So Aluma is technically a nonprofit. So I'm back in the nonprofit world, but it is an organization that produces technical solutions for social problems. Mm-hmm. It's Aluma builds, has tech products that allow government agencies, nonprofits to be able to provide greater access to social services for the residents of the communities. And so. One of the things that gets me excited about this opportunity is that I'm literally marrying my two careers. I'm in the social justice and equity space by way of technology, doing it, performing a business function, right? Like, yeah, I'm on my way to becoming that CEO that I was thinking about when I left Greenlining. And that's amazing for me, you know, like, again, like I'm just his vato from Boyle Heights, you know, and, and here I am. <laughs> the fancy title at a tech organization. Yeah. I, I joined Illumis because it has this vision of being able to test the lives of 25 million people over the next five years. And, and what that means is being able to connect people and give them access to opportunities and services that could really improve their life, their quality of life. So when I was looking at Illuma, you know, it made sense to me, but for our listeners who may not know what problems you guys are actually solving, can you give us some examples of some of these inefficiencies that you guys are helping governments yeah. solve? Yeah. So what, one of the difficult things from, say, a person, low-income community who is struggling for a lot of different reasons, struggling economically, struggling health-wise, struggling with access to quality food, things like that nature, like all mm-hmm. the, you know, the social determinants of health. Right. For many people, it's, you don't know where to turn. And so you may be able to walk into a social services office and talk to somebody eventually who can maybe talk to you about like what social services you might be able to qualify for, but it's a long process. Not everybody has all the information you may need in order for you to determine whether or not you can get this help. And oftentimes Mm -hmm. within 
the government agencies, the agencies, they're siloed. So agencies don't talk to one another. If you have a person who needs Medi-Cal, right, but they're also low income, they don't have access to food so they could qualify for CalFresh or other social services that provide, help you get access to food. Their kids may qualify for subsidized food programs at their school. Sometimes mm-hmm. you have to talk to like a lot of different people just to be able to qualify for all these programs or just get enrolled in these programs. Right. So what Aluma is trying to do is just trying to streamline a process by which individuals who need social services, who qualify for social services, to be enrolled in all those social services so that folks who need help get it. And don't just get help in one area, but get help across the board. And so Aluma is building technology solutions that allows government agencies to be able to bring one person in one time and just say like, hey, come talk to us. Oh, based on the information you shared with us, you actually qualify for this and for that and for this. So now your kids could eat at school. You could pay your rent. You can go see the doctor for that nagging injury that you've had for a long time. You could go see a dentist and you could do it one stop shop. And that doesn't exist for right. now. And navigating the social services Sphere is inefficient. It, you know, it leaves a lot of people behind, and um, you know, there's yeah. a lot of problems. And, and you know, yeah. whereas I was at different companies helping them monetize the solutions to do X, right? Now is an opportunity for me to take all that experience that I've been able to benefit from, learn and grow and develop, and bring it to an organization that is trying to tackle social problems. Part of the reason why Aluma was an opportunity that I really wanted to pursue is because. It's on two levels, on the bigger picture and on the personal level. On on the bigger picture, here's an organization that is, by all intents and purposes, a technology company that Mm -hmm. is building a technology solution or multiple solutions to try to tackle issues of homelessness and access to quality healthcare and access of nutrition, right? So a lot of these social determinants of health that historically has been tackled by way of taxpayer monies being used for social programs. Right. That may or may not be working. Here's an organization thinking, well, what if we use technology as a tool to help us do things better and have a positive social impact? The success of the organization is going to be measured by ability to be able to impact and improve the quality of life for people in this country. That is a mission and a vision that I could really get behind when it comes from a technology company. And that's what makes that's what makes Aluma unique. So that's on a higher level. On a personal level, I think I was meant to be at Aluma. All the roles that I've had have actually prepared me for this specific role. And Aluma is like the next chapter in my purpose-driven career. And maybe that should be the title of this segment, A Purpose-Driven Career. I love it. (laughs) Before we wrap up with our lightning round questions. Is there anything else that you want to share for Hispanic Heritage Month? I want to just remind folks that you got to think big. You got to be proactive in developing your career because the world needs more people like us. Like I can't be the only Hector out there doing this. There's got to be like a small army of Hectors. Hector is a very common name amongst the Latino community. Like I can't be the only Hector at us. There's got to be right. at least five hectares at Haas at any given moment. That's my goal. Right. My goal is like, oh, which hectare at Haas? <laughs> Especially since we're talking about Hispanic Heritage Month. It is important and crucial for Latinos to be active participants 
in this time in our country's history because our country's history is not our country's history. This is a global thing. And it's time. We can't, we as a community can no longer be looked upon through the eyes of stereotypes that have been perpetuated throughout the history of this country. Like it's time right. for us to write our own history moving forward about the contributions that we have made, are making, and will continue to make not just the country that we want it to be, but to actually make the world, the global community that we need to make it in order for us to all thrive. And to me, that's what this is about. And get out there to vote. <laughs> get out there to vote. You're absolutely right. <laughs> that, that's a good message and a good segue for us to transition into our lightning round of questions. Let's do it. The first one of which is, what have you been doing to stay sane? I mean, we, we've been asking this question since April. <laughs> so I'm really curious if things have evolved five months later now that we're, you know, what, seven, eight months into this pandemic? Ceviche. Love it. <laughs> I started a side hustle flagging ceviche, actually, because of my origins in San Juan. And so that's what I was doing. To stay yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have a secret recipe? I do, but I can't tell you because it's a secret. <laughs> I'll definitely have to come up and, and try it. It's worth or, it. or you let It'll me know when it. you come down next. We, uh, we'll go hang out in Boyle Heights. So I usually come and hang out in Lake Forest. That's, that ends up being our base, our home base when I'm in Let's LA. Do it. So yeah, we'll do it definitely. We'll have to do it in I'll Orange bring County. The, uh, what's your favorite uh, beer? I want to pick that up next time I see you. Bohemian minus the N at the end. Got it. Bohemia. Nice. It's the best Mexican Where's that beer. from, by the way? Mexico. Oh, where Mexico? You know, I don't know where, where it's made, but, but it's a national beer. I mean, it's been around for, you know, at least 100 years at this point. Done. It's, okay. a, gold, it's a golden pilsner. Check it out. Bohemia. <laughs> Part of the lightning round questions. What's your favorite beer? Bohemia. And then the next one is, you know, any interesting content that you've uh, consumed lately that you like to share, whether it's books, articles, especially for Hispanic Heritage Month? I'll share something that I've seen and then something that I've read. So Hentified on Netflix is a great show, not just because it's taped in Boyle Heights, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's a great show. It's one of those, what I talked about earlier about like it's, it's our responsibility to be successful in everything that we do. I think it's one of the few opportunities we've seen through media and alternate positive depictions of Latino community. And so Hentified, I recommend it. And then something I read, one of my former colleagues from LinkedIn wrote a book called How Successful People Get Ish Done. And I highly recommend it. It's a, yeah, it's a great book based on his hustle. Ish is one of the best hustlers I've ever met. And we ended up being colleagues at LinkedIn and, and he's young, young guy. And he wrote a book based on his experiences of how it is that he hustles in the self-help space. And there's not a lot of Latinos writing in the space. And mm -hmm. so, uh, through the eyes of a Latino perspective, like somebody that didn't come from privilege, somebody that kind of similar to my background, like humble beginnings, that has been able to do some amazing things in the tech space yeah. and as a DJ and as a coach and so many different things. So, you know, how successful people get ish done. Love it. Okay. We'll definitely share both of those links in the description for this episode. Definitely. Yeah. We'll. Okay. Last question is, do you have a favorite memory of Haas? My favorite memory of Haas, if I had to pick one, it's graduation. It's, it's me being the student speaker. It's 35 of my family members sitting at the <laughs> very top of the Greek theater, screaming yeah. my name, acting like it's a soccer match. <laughs> yeah. What'd you talk about? The thing was, the thing was leadership. 
And it was about me sharing some thoughts about what I thought the leader for the future needs to be like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's funny to me because, you know, I wrote this back in 2011. Yeah. But I think I wrote that for the 2020 version of myself. And, and I listen to it every now and then. And I think to myself, man, this is what I need to be doing today. When I think about leadership today, you know, like who I need to lead. Yeah. What was the takeaway? Well, the takeaway is that you you have to be diverse and you have to embrace diversity. I speak about how like the leader of tomorrow needs to speak multiple languages. So I thought about they need to be bold and they need to be audacious. Now I've learned we need to be compassionate and empathetic and humble. Mm-hmm. So to me, I was proposing a profile of a leader that nine years later, as I, as I listen to the video, uh, again, I think it's irrelevant today. You know, you got to be a global leader. Leaders can't be just one type of leader. And that's why I think all these things that we're seeing today playing out in, in our society globally, I think is part of the problem that leadership has only been looked at and, and appreciated and admired and rewarded for being a certain way. And it's very homogenous. And so you need a leader to be able to touch the lives of people that don't look like you, who are not from your background, who don't speak the same language as you and be able to inspire them. So it can't be, you can't just lead people like you. You have to lead people who are unlike you. Um, and I think that's the main takeaway. That's a real testament of leadership to be able to lead people unlike you. Well, thank you so much. Victor, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you, Sean. Can't wait to talk to you again and get some updates in the future. Maybe have you on again. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd love to. Bring me back. I I love the sound of my voice. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna delete that out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate it if you could give us a five-star rating and review. You can also check out more of our content on our website, haaspodcast.org. That's podcast with an S at the end, where you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. Until next time, go Bears. <laughs>